After discovering that only two out of the 300 case studies read by first-year MBA students at Harvard Business School featured black executives, Professor Stephen S. Rogers took matters into his own hands. According to the Washington Post, quote, Rogers decided to write his own case studies and has so far highlighted many black executives in a wide range of industries, unquote. But more than just case studies, Rogers is transforming Harvard Business School's curriculum. In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, Rogers sheds light on a more complete narrative of entrepreneurship, discussing the legacy of black entrepreneurs and the importance of inclusion in the marketplace. I take my clock, my watch off so that I can, I can keep the time and I'm going to be talking to you about black entrepreneurship uh, this evening. And, uh, you know, when I, when I look at this watch, it, it puts me in the mind of my, my mother, who was the finest entrepreneur that I ever knew. And um, she'll be really proud of me today to have the opportunity to speak to such an impressive group of young people on the topic of black entrepreneurship, black entrepreneurs. As I said, she was one of the, the greatest entrepreneurs that I ever knew. And this watch always reminds me of it because, you know, when she was gravely ill, uh, she was in the hospital and she called me into her hospital room and she said to me Steve you're the oldest of my three children and as I said to you before she's the greatest entrepreneur I ever knew and she said this watch has been our family for three generations and she said you're the oldest of my three children and I want to give you the chance to buy this watch from me Got you there. On a more serious note, it's truly an honor to have been invited here by Ivy um, to talk to you about entrepreneurship and how it impacts the black community. Um, In a single word, entrepreneurship has meant freedom to the black community. Black entrepreneurship did not begin in 1984 with Oprah Winfrey's ownership of her own television station. It also did not begin in 1942 when John Johnson started the Negro Digest, which later became Ebony Magazine. John Johnson founded Ebony Magazine at a time in America when it was an unwritten rule in the 1940s. It was an unwritten rule that the only time an African-American was to be shown their photo was to be shown in the media, in the newspaper, or any other periodical, was if they had committed a crime. In response to that, John Johnson said, I want to create a publication that addresses that. I want people to know, in his words, I want them to know the swell things about the Negro. And entrepreneurship did not begin in 1910 when Sarah Breedlove Walker, who we all know as Madam C.J. Walker, built a hair care manufacturing plant with over 3,000 employees in Indianapolis and became the country's first black millionaire. Black entrepreneurship did not begin in 1905 when Robert Abbott began the Chicago Defender newspaper, which was America's first national newspaper. The first national newspaper was not the Wall Street Journal, was not the USA Today. It was the Chicago Defender. Finally, it did not begin in 1903 when Maggie Walker became the country's first 
bank, female bank president with the establishment of the St. Luke's Bank. No, my friends, black entrepreneurship, it began with 32 years after the first African-Americans landed in America. When Anthony Johnson, a black man, decided to buy farmland and created his own business after 18, uh, 18, uh, 1615, 1615. Now, before the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, free blacks in the South and the North had an insatiable appetite for business ownership such that on the eve of the Civil War, their collective wealth was conservatively estimated to be over $50 million. And if we were to take $50 million and apply an interest rate of 4% over 150 years, that $50 million would be equal to $15 billion in today's dollars. Now those black entrepreneurs, they included James Fortin, who in the late 1700s owned a manufacturing company in Philadelphia that made sales for ships. James Fortin employed more than 40 black and white workers. In 1838, free black women created jobs for themselves and other people through their domination of the dressmaking and wig making industries. In 1840, free blacks in New York also created jobs through their ownership of one clothes cleaners, one hairdressing salon, one confectionery, one fruit store, two coal yards, two dry goods stores, two restaurants, three tailor shops, and six boarding houses. Now surprisingly, black entrepreneurship was not limited to free blacks. Slaves also were allowed to be entrepreneurs. Slaves such as Frank McWhorter, John Barry Meacham, and Robert Renfro were also allowed to own their own businesses. They ultimately used their share of the profits that they gained from their businesses to buy their freedom. John Barry Meacham owned a carpentry business. In addition to purchasing his own freedom, he purchased the freedom of all of his family members and 20 other friends. In 1794, Robert Renfro started a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, where he served food as well as liquor. He purchased his freedom and a friend's freedom seven years later in 1801. Finally, Frank McWhorter in the early 1800s started a company that produced saltpeter, the main ingredient in gunpowder. With the company's profits, he purchased his freedom and the freedom of 16 family members. So yes, my friends, blacks have always been entrepreneurs, and I applaud and celebrate those brave black men and women who used entrepreneurship literally as a tool for freedom. But before we leave the topic of the history of black entrepreneurship, I'd like to make the point that black entrepreneurship, especially the, during the Jim Crow era, immediately following the end of slavery, was not loved by everyone. In fact, one of the worst incidents of violence ever perpetrated upon blacks was directly related to successful black entrepreneurship. This event took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 1st, 1921, and has been referred to as the Black Holocaust in America. You know, my friends, in the Roaring Twenties, one of the most affluent black communities in America was not in New York, it was not in Chicago, but it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was also known as the Black Wall Street. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, 15,000 blacks res resided in that city. And man, were they something special. 
In a 36 square block area, they owned and operated over 600 businesses. A dollar would circulate 36 to 1,000 times, sometimes taking a year to leave the black community. The main thoroughfare of this 36 area, square block area, was Greenwood Avenue intersected by Archer and intersected by another street called Pine. The first three letters of those three streets are G-A-P, which spells gap. And that's where a band from Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Gap Band, got their name. Those black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they own one bus system. They own 30 grocery stores, 21 restaurants, six private airplanes, two movie theaters, one hospital, one bank, and one, again, busing system. Now, don't these acts just warm you with pride and admiration? It makes you feel good about America. It makes you feel good about the opportunity that blacks had after slavery to prosper. Unfortunately, the pride and admiration that you, me, and everybody else felt about those 15,000 black people was not admired by everyone else. There was a lot of jealousy and disdain that was exhibited by a group of whites on June 1st, June 21st, 1921. In a period of a fewer than 12 hours, the Black Wall Street was gone, my friends. An envious mob of whites burned down all of the businesses and killed 3,000 black Americans. Unfortunately, Tulsa's black community has never recovered from this little known major tragedy. But tragedies like this happen throughout the entire country with affluent, well-to-do black communities. Today, entrepreneurship for the black community is just as important as it was 200 years ago. It's one of the main ingredients for the development of black self-sufficiency and healthy, safe black communities. There are presently 2.6 million black-owned firms in America, constituting 7% of all companies in the United States. But my friends, I'm here to tell you that's not enough. Our country desperately needs more black entrepreneurs who can create significant wealth for themselves as well as wealth for others. In the book, A Millionaire Next Door, the author cites the fact that 80% of the country's millionaires gain their wealth through business ownership. The other 20% did it the old-fashioned hard way. They inherited it, okay? As Eugene Lang, the founder of I Have a Dream Foundation said, there is absolutely nothing wrong with becoming rich as long as one enrich others along the way. And my friends, wealthy black entrepreneurs do just that. They enrich other minorities by giving them jobs. Yes, like all entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs do good for society by doing well for themselves. There was an article by national newspaper columnist Clarence Page that really magnifies the need for more black entrepreneurs. In that article, he cites the fact that in a recent study, it was shown that black males in their 20s committed four violent crimes for every one crime committed by white males in the same age category. But when the study was controlled for employment, there was no significant differences in the crime rates. Who are the most likely employers of black males and other minorities? Black entrepreneurs, my friends. 
Research has shown that like their ancestors, black entrepreneurs, regardless of their company's location, be their company located in the city or in the suburbs or in rural areas, black entrepreneurs create jobs for other minorities. There's a study by Dr. Timothy Bates which shows that white-owned companies located in minority communities have workforces that are 32% minority, while black-owned companies in minority communities have a workforce that's 85% minority. Then he moved the study outside of the inner cities, and he found that white-owned companies located in, com in white communities have workforces that are 15% minorities. Conversely, black-owned companies in white communities have a workforce that is at least 75% minority. So obviously these facts show that more black entrepreneurs will help solve the problem of providing jobs for minorities. Again, I'd like to repeat the fact, we desperately in America need more black entrepreneurs. Simply placing companies in minority communities does not create jobs for minorities. The company's ownership is more important than the company's location. Let me give you an example. In Chicago, there's a community on the west side of Chicago called Austin. The Austin community have a, has a population of approximately 100,000 people. Out of those 100,000 people, 11% of those people are unemployed. 23% receive food stamps and 98% are African-American. This same community has one of the densest populations of small manufacturing companies. In this community, there are 4,000 manufacturing companies which are primarily white-owned. Those 4,000 companies employ 90,000 people. Only 8% of those 90,000 people in that community are minority. It would be too simple to blame this entirely on racism, my friends. Instead, the reality is that a lot of this has to do with how people get jobs, especially in small companies. It's primarily based on employee referrals by friends and families. The company's initial employees tend to come from the owner's same communities because that's who they know. Therefore, that's who gets referred and hired for new openings. Therefore, let me repeat it. We need more black entrepreneurs because this would benefit the black community in America as a whole. When the black community prospers, America also prospers. And so one of the points that I'd like to make is that while we need more black entrepreneurs, we need those black entrepreneurs to grow and create what's called high growth entrepreneurial endeavors. There's two type of companies in America. One is a company that is created by what's called a lifestyle entrepreneur. A lifestyle entrepreneur is a person who creates a company and he creates the company and he opens the door every morning and he's hopeful, he's hopeful that somebody comes into the business enabling him to generate enough income to lead a nice middle-class lifestyle. He doesn't necessarily have any ambitions for growing his company to be a major entity. He only wants the business to generate income to lead a comfortable lifestyle. 
This is also known as the mom and pop business. In contrast to that, and what we desperately need is, we need more high growth African-American entrepreneurs. And high growth entrepreneurs are those people who go the entrepreneur route, they write a business plan. Not only do they write the plan, they actually work the business in accordance to the plan. They expect the business to grow exponentially with the byproduct of that growth being wealth creation. They expect wealth creation to occur for their investors, wealth creation for themselves, and possibly even wealth creation for their employees, three stakeholders. And so what we need in America, we need more high growth entrepreneurs. And unfortunately in the black community, while there are 2.6 million black owned companies, 98% of those companies have no employees. And so what we see is we see the absence of job creation occurring, even from those employees, those folks who decide to go the entrepreneur route. We desperately need more entrepreneurs and we need those entrepreneurs to be high growth entrepreneurs. So as we look to close this, let me ask the question, how can those of you in the audience help in the effort to create more black, successful, high growth entrepreneurs? The first thing I would tell you is to use their services and buy their products. If I go to a new city, one of the first things I do in an effort to put money in the black economy, I find out what the black restaurants are those city, in those cities, and then I go to those black rest, black-owned restaurants. I make sure that I put money in the community in that fashion right there. Another thing that you can do is spend your money with companies who support black entrepreneurship. Two great examples are Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Blacks are responsible for 25% of Coke's revenues and 15% of McDonald's. Both of these companies have large numbers of black distributors and owners. The other thing I would ask you to do is take note of the fact and realize that without blacks in America, we would be in trouble. Black entrepreneurship and specifically black entrepreneurs. Black entrepreneurship in America has resulted in the creation of great inventions that are all that are part of all of our lives. For example, brilliant black entrepreneurs like Sarah Boone, a black woman, she invented the ironing board. Walter Sammons, a black man, his company invented the hair comb. Lydia Newman, a black woman, she invented the hairbrush. George Salmon, a black man, his company invented the clothes dryer. John Burr, a black man, his company invented the lawnmower. Garrett Morgan, a black man, his company invented traffic signals. Alice Parker, a black woman, she invented the heating furnace. Lonnie Johnson, a black man, invented the super soaker water gun. And Miles Alexander Miles, a black man, invented the elevator. Without black entrepreneurs, all of our lives in this room would be dramatically different. And black entrepreneurs have been not only in the food services and the hospitality industry, but we've also been 
in the technology and the production and manufacturing industries as well. So I'd like to leave you with this statement. And that is, for those of you who are not of African descent, you're going to be leaving this earth and you're going to get a chance to talk to your forefathers and foremothers. And they're going to ask you, what did you do? What did you do to help your country when you were alive by helping African-Americans? To those of you who are of African descent, you're going to go meet your slave ancestors. All of us of African descent are from countries that were either enslaved or colonized, except the country of Ethiopia. That's the only African country that was never colonized. But all of us have a common history. And slavery is a part of that history, no matter where we come from. And we're going to go meet our slave ancestors, at which time they're going to ask us, what did you do for our people when you were free? Hopefully you will say, I became an entrepreneur. I became a businessman, a businesswoman. I invited my non-African-American friends to invest in my endeavors so I can grow companies to create jobs for our people because I knew that people who have jobs are self-sufficient and self-sufficient people live in healthy communities. That I was part of the solution to the problem. And as a result of that, I helped make America better and I helped uplifting of our people. Thank you all very much. Have a great night. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.